Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Good morning, church. If you could give up one of your five senses, which would it be? You've been asked that, right? You go back and forth in your mind and think, well, what would it be? Usually hearing and vision rise to the top of that list of of ones you wouldn't. Um, And do you think, well... I can't see, that's terrifying. If I can't hear, then I'm missing out on, on so many things. And I mean, and then I'm in Chicago and the food is so good. And man, I, I can't live without taste and, and, and touch. And you think through and you're wrestling with this. Uh, and you think, well, to, to lack one or several, could it be really terrifying? Indeed, it is. But there are other things in life that are terrifying. Uh, to us that don't include our senses. Maybe you are terrified by running out of money. Or maybe it's not that drastic. Maybe you're just terrified of your car breaking down in the middle of the Eisenhower. Maybe you're terrified of being alone. Maybe you're terrified of darkness. Whatever it is, we all have fears, and some of those fears sort of rise to a top and really become a fever pitch that if they indeed happen to us, um, we would lose it. We wouldn't know what to do or who to turn to. As we continue our journey through the book of Kings, we understand and remember once again that Israel, who is reading this, is reading their story uh, as a result of all the things happening in this book. And As we go through, I'm imagining one of the questions that they have is a question that we all should ask ourselves, uh, perhaps, is how can we get someone to rescue us from terror? How can we get somebody to rescue us from our worst fears? I believe our text today is going to teach us that God sends his powerful prophet to rescue us from real terrors. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read God's word together. Lord, we pray for this moment that we hear your word. Lord, nothing could be said or nothing could improve the very words you have given to us in your holy scriptures. And so we're asking for the Holy Spirit to come and illuminate his holy word. We pray that he would find a comfortable residence in each of our hearts and in our minds, that we wouldn't merely just receive the word with hearts and mindlessly, or receive the word rationally with no thought of our affections. Oh Lord, I pray that you would just bundle up every aspect of our being in this time that we have, captivate our affections, Free us from our fears and our terrors. Show us Christ in ways, Lord, that perhaps I cannot or may have not prepared for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in the book of 2 Kings and chapter 6. 
2 Kings chapter 6. Next week, by the way, we'll have the joy of hearing a preacher from Lisbon, Portugal, um, Tiago Oliveira. He'll be preaching God's word uh, for us uh, in Kings. I asked him, are you sure? He said, yes. All right, so um, you'll get a break from me. 2 Kings 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? Then he showed him the place. He cut off a stick, threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha. The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So the Lord struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. 
And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. There you have it, folks. That too is God's word. God sends his powerful prophet to rescue from real terrors. Our text, this story, is technically what we would call a comedy. Now, that doesn't mean that it's humorous or it's supposed to be funny, although there are some lines in there, if you're paying attention, that make you want to chuckle. See, biblically speaking, in biblical literature, a comedy is what we would call a U-shaped story. Just imagine the letter U. At one point of the story, everything is good. Things are prospering. But then it descends into tragedy down here at the bottom. And then it goes back up to flourishing, prospering. Often, these comedies are built around unforeseeable circumstances. And it's heavy on surprising reversals. So this story, actually these two stories together, we would call technically a comedy. They are two rescue scenes from terror that really in the moment, if you think about it, for these people in these situations, it's quite palpable. And these two terrors that we're going to look at today actually parallel some of our own worst fears. The text presents for us two terrors, the first being bondage and the other being blindness. So in verses 1 through 7, we see through the eyes of the young prophet, the protege, the terror of bondage. See, a local school of prophets under Elisha's supervision, they had a good problem. They were growing. And so they needed to expand. They needed more space. So they suggested that they all participate in a building project. And Elisha, being the man of few words that he was, indicates with his one or two word answers in these first seven verses, uh, in verse two, verse three, verse six, and seven, they're all like one, one word or two words in the original language, Hebrew. And given Elisha's preferred distance from people, he actually agreed to go when they asked him. He could have said, no, it'll be all right. You guys go ahead. And this proved to be providential. And while they're down there chopping down trees uh, by the Jordan River, which wasn't really known as a tree hugger's paradise, so it's kind of a mystery why they would go to the Jordan and, and, get, and, and get wood and, and timbers. But over the racket and the ruckus of trees being uh, you know, trees falling down, and you, you can just imagine, you hear, timber! Over that, you hear, oh, no, 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 no. With a frantic young man, maybe wading into the water of the Jordan River, looking for his lost tool. And he says, it was borrowed. And all of a sudden, that becomes the problem. The prophetic expansion program was not the problem anymore. It all focused in on a lost tool. Now, we might not think much of it as people in the 21st century, but let's put ourselves in this person's sandals for a second. This prophet was quite likely poor. He didn't have a lot. They lived together. They kind of culled their resources. So he's, by, by the standards of the day, he's an average poor man. And here's the other thing. Iron was an expensive commodity. Not everyone owned iron tools, and it was really hard to come by. So if you think about it, without the safety net of insurance policies, this kind of loss would probably have felt more like this 
that's a little bit more familiar to you and I. Say that you borrow or you lend your car to your friend. They take it home for the night, they park it outside their apartment, and he wakes up and the car is gone. You file a police report, and the police say, yeah, we found a car by that description, and it's totaled. And you think to yourself and say to your friend, I'm not sure how I can ever pay this back. Now, there is probably that terrifying, sinking feeling that this prophet had. See, aside from the shame of not being able to return such a nice tool to its owner, the only recourse for a citizen of Israel could have been to sell himself to the owner of that tool until the debt was paid or until a time of what we would call, what the Bible calls jubilee, came about, where debts were canceled and slaves were freed. So he is looking at, all of a sudden, his, his future is flashing before his eyes. No more is he going to be going to prophet school. He's going to be locked up, not in jail, but committed to paying off a debt that he could never afford. Maybe he dreamed of getting married or maybe becoming like his master, Elisha. But this incident spelled financial ruin that would enslave him for a long, long time. But Elisha's being with the prophetic company at this time when the borrowed tool was lost was really God's providence in motion. The desperate young man went to the one person he knew who could possibly help. Alas, master, it was borrowed. And so matter-of-factly, without a lot of details, it's like Elisha's like, this is everyday business, yo. Yeah, he gets a twig. Some people think he actually shaped like a, an, a, the handle of an axe and just threw it there. So this was a miracle, okay? This wasn't Elijah, Elisha poking around with a twig and, and, and getting it to come, come up. This, this was a, miracle, a bona fide miracle. And you can imagine, if you're still in the imaginary mode in your mind here, which you need to have on today, um, you can imagine this young man recounting the story to the, to the Axis owner later, saying possibly, I, I don't know what I would have done if Elisha wasn't there. Now, why this story? Of all the things that happened in Israel's history or through the prophet Elisha, why does the author pick this one out? Remember, the audience hearing this for the first time is post this occurrence. They're enslaved, they're in bondage. And they're thinking, Israelites are thinking, how can we avoid bondage? Oh, we're in it. How can we avoid this again? See, it's not necessarily about how and when Israel could escape the circumstances of their exile. What the captives of Israel needed to know through this story more than when the clock was going to be up on their bondage, was how to avoid repeating their lackluster history. And to not repeat history, they didn't nearly need a, a second chance. What they needed was a prophet, a priest, a king, all of whom, by their messages, their intercessions, their sacrifices, and their decrees, could permanently reverse the causes of their faithless, idolatrous hearts. So they were all too familiar with the bondage theme. They were living it. And they didn't want this to happen again to them. 
So Elisha indeed demonstrated God's power to rescue people from truly terrifying situations. The story is no fairy tale. So you say, Pastor, do you believe that that actually happened, that this this was a miracle? Yes, I do. Because if I question the validity of a story like that, I actually have to question all the other similar stories in the whole Bible. So my cards are on the table. They really happened. But if you're an Israelite hearing the story for the first, second, or maybe umpteenth time, you got to wonder, again, try to be in their heads. When will our Elijah or our Elisha come to rescue us? I mean, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they forfeited the paradise of Eden for the enslavements of their own will, and they reaped a death sentence upon themselves. And our nomadic ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as much as they tried, they ended up enslaved in Egypt. And later, after their emancipation from Egypt, they entered God's promised land. But soon they fell into a cycle of sin, oppression, calling out to God, and God sending judges to get them out of their situations. That was their history. And thinking that, and looking around and saying, you know, they have a king, they have a king. Thinking that a king could save them from their problems, because after all, we need a leader that we can actually see. They asked for a king, and God gave them. But the experiment that started with Saul was a false start until David, his successor, came along. And David was Israel's king. And then there was Solomon. But as we started the book of Kings, way last year, I think, we saw that under Solomon, Israel experienced the best days of her existence. But under Solomon... The seeds of a united Israel's unraveling were sown. Israel had more than one chance to experience the God of second chances. But Kings is this dark story of Israel slowly circling the drain to almost certain non-existence with little chance of survival. So when we heard that reading of scripture today from Psalm 137, that was providential. That is the psalm of captivity. Man, we used to to rock it when we were together. And and now we're in Babylon, stranded in captivity. We've hung up our electric guitars, our bands, our trumpets. We're not singing. And they're taunting us to sing the songs of, of, of Israel, to sing our worship songs. Things were not good. The Israelites hearing this story probably felt like, man, if we're not coming out of a time of bondage, we're certainly going straight into another bondage. The floating axe head incident is another miraculous reversal in Elisha's ministry. If you think about the circumstances before, the stories before, this is a kind of resurrection. A loss happens, and it is miraculously recovered The laws of gravity are defied. Now, the principles for us today aren't, how can I avoid financial slavery? How can I avoid a life of death? How can I avoid this experience, any kind of bondage? Well, I want to speak, first of all, to those who you may consider yourself perhaps friendly to religion, but maybe you're not Christian. There are lots of things I 
concur with you that you are afraid of, that we're all afraid of. But there's one thing you should be really afraid of that you actually might not be afraid of right now, and that is bondage to sin. The problems in this world are not the, the, the worst problems. The teenage takeover downtown Chicago is not the worst thing in the world. Okay, what's going on in Ukraine or going on in Sudan or wherever things are happening, those aren't the world, those aren't the world's worst problems. The world's worst problems lie resident in each one of us, and it is indwelling sin. You are a sinner who needs saving. You, I will be so bold to say, you are in bondage to sin. You love sin. You can't imagine doing your life without it. And that is both the bad news and the good news because you're a slave. You say, wait, 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 man. We're like post-antebellum here in America, aren't we? No, you are a slave to sin, the worst kind of slavery. And there's no hope of getting out of it unless you attach yourself to the one who can redeem you and get you out of it. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to free sinners from their worst problem. But for Christians, as you read a text like this, you wonder, like, okay, what, what, what does this matter? Like, how is this going to change Monday, going to work, doing the grind? I mean, what specific application is there for me when I consider a floating axe head? Well, I don't know if I'm going to nail this, but I would say this, that for Israel, God would remind Israel many times to remember the exodus from Egypt. Where whatever their situation, God would remember, hey, I was the God who brought you out of Egypt. God always went back to that. But for us today in the church, in the 21st century, God reminds us through baptism that we are no longer slaves to sin, but alive to God. So I want to exhort us today, encourage us today to all to remember our baptism. Not just the moment that when we were baptized, but what it means to be a baptized Christian. To be a baptized Christian captivates in it the symbol of bondage and death, being buried. You're, you're, you're bound in sin, you're dead in sin, and you're buried your sins are buried, and you're buried into Jesus Christ, and you are risen again, alive in him. So this is not just some, you know, well, Will's going the sacramental route here. It is no for real. When we look at the story of a floating axe head and being saved out of bondage, for the Christian here today, when you go home today and tomorrow and this week, and you struggle with indwelling sin, or the sins that so easily beset you and trip you up, I encourage you to remember your baptism. Remember that you are buried in Christ and risen again. As Romans 6 says, you no longer are slaves to sin, but instruments of righteousness unto God. Your identity is not slave to sin. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin. That just means that the way God sees it is that that's not who you are. You are a new creation. You're a son. You're a daughter. You are not a slave. And so I exhort you and encourage you to live like a daughter. Live like a son. Not like a slave in bondage. Remember your baptism. 
and remember it, not just in this moment of the sermon, but as we come to the table today, as these two, these two glorious symbols are bound together, baptized Christians taking the ongoing symbol of our fellowship and communion with God and with each other. So the first terror acknowledged both literally the terror of bondage, but yet that was so symbolic of Israel's history and is really symbolic of our own, and that is the terror of bondage. The text now leads us to consider the terror of blindness in verses 8 to 23. This next episode in Elisha's prophetic ministry is an instance of something that seemed to happen more than a couple times. I love how this goes, uh, that this, where does it say in verse 15 or verse 8? Um, he says to the king, the, king's, the, visitor, the king of Syria is making plans to attack such and such a place. It's not important to the details of the text that this is where it's going to happen. But somehow Elisha finds out, he sends word to the king. I mean, you talk about, I mean, if you're, if you're in the military, you're talking about this is, the, this is, the, this is sweet intelligence. Like, you want this kind of information. And time and again, Israel would be, Israel would avoid a raid from the opposing nation. Remember that during the ninth, ninth century when this was happening, not necessarily when this was written, in the ninth century, Syria was, in, was Israel's international thorn in the side. If you want to think like of a modern equivalent, think of what Russia is to Ukraine. All right, I'm not trying to import international relations here. I'm just saying, here's a perspective. Small nation, bigger enemy, always causing trouble. And one night, imagine here with me for a second. Before the king of Syria went to bed, he debriefed his cabinet on his upcoming itinerary for how he was going to raid neighboring Israel. The problem was, there was a mole leaking precious Syrian intel to Israel. So he thought, verse 11. But a servant in the king's court knew better. So imagine this conversation playing out a little bit. The king says, how is it? How is it that they keep finding out where we're going? Who's giving us up? Servant says, it's not any of us, your highness. Uh, it's actually Elisha of Israel. Wait. You mean the guy that healed Naaman? That's right. Yes, sir. And uh, I hate to tell you this, but he's so good at what he does as a prophet that those sweet nothings and private conversations that you have with Mrs. Queen, <clears throat> sir, um, he knows about those. He's able to hear, he's able to see this. Now, perhaps that's an exaggeration. It's not like uh, Elisha had some kind of cup or radar in there and he was listening in on everything. That's not the point. The point of this kind of exaggeration is saying that the prophet of Israel, Israel's prophet, had a beat on God's mind. And he was able to access information that was, that was significant for the temporary salvation of Israel. Now that infuriated the king. He would not be outdone. So he finds Elisha's whereabouts. And like what happened in chapter 1, you remember chapter 1? When a, a king of Israel was looking to seize Elijah, what does he do? He sends a company of 50 three times to apprehend Elijah. 
with a great army of horses and chariots. So that's what happens here with Elisha. The king's like, uh-uh, this guy, not, this guy's not doing this. So what does he do? He doesn't send a company of 50. He sends an army. This is like a whole police force plus all the local SWAT teams descending upon Elisha's Airbnb. Now, I don't, I don't think Elisha necessarily resided in Dothan. He was you know, probably somewhat migrant. So this is probably not his full-time abode. You talk about overkill. Sending so many people to seize one person. But I want us to remember how things have been working in the book of Kings. So far, Elisha has healed, resurrected, or restored, or reversed something. By the time the Elisha story gets done in 2 Kings, he will have doubled the number of miracles that his predecessor did. And so if you are Israel sitting in bondage, seeing the story play out, kind of remembering or being told like, okay, Elijah's a great prophet, and then comes Elijah, and Elisha, sorry, Elisha outdoes him double. You're thinking, man, is somebody going to come for us and maybe do triple or quadruple what Elisha did? So uh, this was a statement from the king of Syria, this excess force. But think about this. How do you wake up to a whole army positioning in front of your door? I mean, how don't you wake up to that? I don't know. But you can imagine, again, sanctified imagination here. Elisha's servant wakes up a little bit before the boss does, puts on the pot of coffee. He gets his first cup going outside to clear his head. Little me time goes out, walks onto the porch to get the the Dothan Gazette, and to his horror, everywhere he turns is an army. So he rushes back inside. He says, "Uh, boss, you're going to want to see this. And can you picture Elisha opening the curtain and peeking out? The poor helpless guy doesn't know what to do except to ask what we all actually ask at terrifying junctures in our lives. What are we going to do? And Elisha said, son, this is a problem. But uh, this is not my first rodeo in these kinds of things. See, Elisha knew and could see something his servant couldn't. And so he says, don't be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And to take a time out and fast forward us into the New Testament and into 2023 Chicago, a similar word kind of shouts over the New Testament over history when the old apostle John writes to the church and he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Same God, different time periods. So Elisha prays. He doesn't rebuke his, come on, kid, just, I got this. Stand back. All right, go take a 15-minute go a, go a break. No, he prays. He prays for his servant. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. We see the the fervent prayers of a righteous man on behalf of the man right in front of him. This one 
who perhaps his prophetic career would be writing on a right interpretation of the events. Friends, I want to encourage us all here that we need to pray for others to see insofar as we see Jesus. This is where we need to pray, Lord, increase their faith. We are legitimized in praying and asking God to see things, that other people would see things, not exactly how we see them, because sometimes you know how you pray, right? You're like, you're, you're in tension with somebody, and you know you have to pray, so you pray, but you pray so that the other person would th- see things your way, right? Because if they solved things my way, I mean, Everything would just be hunky-dory. We would not be in this like little kerfuffle and mess, so I'm just going to pray that they see things my way. No, this isn't a prayer asking God to make them see things the way you see things. This is more along the lines of what the apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. Get this. When he said, I pray for you, and for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. And get this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So when we pray for other people, other Christians especially, we pray that they would see Jesus and that they would see life and reality like Jesus sees it. You can take these words from 2 Kings or from Ephesians 1 and pray them for your neighbor, pray them for your roommate, pray them for your spouse, pray them for your family, pray them for your fellow church members, pray them for your pastors, pray them hopefully for your deacons, but pray that God would give them the eyes of their hearts, understanding and illumination. And you know what? The Lord answered Elisha's prayer. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he, that's the young man, saw. And what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow. It's like, that was there the whole time? Yeah. That's what I see. Friends, just as a quick aside, this is why. To connect things within the book of Kings. This, is, this explains why both Elijah and Elisha are referred to as the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said this about Elijah back in chapter 2 when he saw him disappear into the clouds. And on his deathbed, coming in chapter 13, this is what the king of Israel is going to say in reverence to Elisha. Because in a nation disintegrating due to state-sanctioned idolatry, remember, Israel is not in a good place. The real power, the real boss, was God's prophet. And as his servant is beholding this new perspective on life and the situation, can can you hear? Can you hear the horses and the chariots bearing down, rumbling? And so... What does he do? What happens? Uh, Elisha, thanks for the scene. I get it. So now what are we going to do? What does Elisha do? Elisha prays again. This time he prays not for sight, but for blindness. 
and Yahweh answers. Yahweh blinds a whole raiding army. This is reminiscent. Put your Old Testament together here. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 19, verse 11, where the angel of the Lord strikes the men of Sodom who were bent on sexually assaulting the angelic visitors to Lot's house. This was a big guy. These guys were going to break down the door so they could do perverse things to these men who appeared men but were really angels. And the angels struck them, same language, same idea, with blindness. Now, the kind of blindness inflicted in both occasions might very well, been, very well have been some kind of like blinding light or a, a mass refraction, like when, you know, when a, a mirror is like perfectly positioned in the sun and it hits your eyes, what, is it, what happens to you? You're like, so take that and multiply it by hundreds, maybe thousands. So I don't know if it was like a temporary, like eyes are shut, they lose the faculty of seeing but they are not able to see anything. They are at a severe disadvantage. Perhaps in a moment, their worst nightmare, their terror is happening, can I say it, right to their very eyes. And in a moment, Elisha has an army right in the palm of his hand. Now, it wasn't Elisha's place as a prophet to kill a whole battalion of soldiers. But what does he do? I think this is probably, talk about comedic and humorous. This is funny. He takes them on a hike from Dothan to Samaria. This wasn't, I, I don't know, it, it, was a, it was a hike. They didn't have cars, you know, no scooters. Like everyone, get your divvy, we're gonna just, just follow me. No, Elisha, leads them. He says, you guys are actually in the wrong place, but guess what? I am such a hospitable guy. I'm just going to take time out of my busy schedule, and I'm going to take you to, to the city and to the guy you're looking for. Great. And once in Samaria, the Syrian army still blinded, Elisha prays again. And he prays this time for the blindness to be lifted. And so God answers his prayer. And the irony is that the army that earlier surrounded Elisha to seize and to silence him is now surrounded by the army of Israel and its king. Like, they're doomed. How God answers prayer, huh? And I want to make this connection between what the book of James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That was said of Elijah. Double for Elisha. The, the, the fervent prayers of a righteous man like Elisha had great power. And what was the thing about Elijah that James says? James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's comforting. You mean, I can pray and whole armies will be thwarted? I'm not saying that. I don't think the Bible's insinuating that. But the power in prayer, the source of the power you have access to today, right now. And so I ask you, do you believe in the power behind prayer, the power in prayer? If you had a power source like Elisha did, wouldn't that change things for you? In your life, 
Oh, that I could do that. And one of these sort of humming over this story is that you can. You can pray. It's the same God, the same Holy Spirit who energizes our prayers. But as the story closes, a surprising thing happens. I mean, this is like every king's dream, right? Like, I didn't have to go and get these guys. Like, they came right, right into the home court. We have home court advantage here. These guys are surrounded. And, and again, he uses the language towards Elisha of who's the real boss. The king of Israel, who they don't even bother to name because it doesn't really matter for this story, says, my father, shall we strike them? Like a giddy kid. And he says it a second time. Can, I, can we kill them? And Elisha commends an unconventional thing. He says, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? He's harking back to the spirit of Old Testament law. In fact, he says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Imagine if you're the king and you're just sitting there like. He tells his servants, okay, do what he said. We get a glimpse of how God deals with outsiders. We get a glimpse here of how God deals with enemies. It reminds us of what the book of Proverbs chapter 25 says that the book of Romans chapter 12 picks up on that. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. To react that way to people who are bona fide enemies has a healing effect. You don't believe me? Well, just read our story. The last word of the story is this. They were sent away. This is God's word. And the Syrians did not come on again on raids into the land of Israel. Now, in the big scheme of things, they did. But the point here is that for Israel, this action cooled down the hostility between Israel and their worst enemy. So when languishing in the doldrums of exile, you hear the message of God's powerful prophet rescuing his people from the terror of being outnumbered and surrounded on every side, using blindness and using sunlight. And all of a sudden, Israel's story of fallenness and blindness, their history of blindness spiritually, should have caused them to long and to say, like the Greek men who came to Nathanael in John chapter 12. Here's Greeks coming to the Jew. And this is what they said to Nathanael, one of the disciples of Christ. Simply, we want to see Jesus. And if you're laying in the the squalor of bondage and blindness, reliving these moments, terrible, terrifying moments. And you hear that, in a sense, God set a table for his enemies in the midst of his chosen people. You might be thinking, what shall we say to these things? If God is for them and spreads a meal for them, who can be against us? Or how much more will God Give good gifts to his children. 
Or as Romans chapter 8 says, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if God would allow these Gentile raiders to be fed and let go, Israel in bondage, rightfully because of their sin and their forefathers' sins, is, gonna, is now hearing words of hope and grace. Friends, the, 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 the book of Kings is like circling the drain. More darkness, more darkness, more damnation. Oh my, could it ever come to an end? But hear the words of grace. How much more? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangerous sword, as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, seen and unseen, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Maybe you are struggling and thinking, I'm in bondage to something. I'm blind. When am I going to get out of this? And you must preach the words of Romans 8 to your heart, to your soul. How much more? God gave up his only son for you. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That is the word, the word of hope for us today. I want to ask all of us a question in closing. Are you controlled by the temporal or the transcendent? In other words, are you terrified only by what you can see? Or maybe you're the, the other kind of person. Are, are you the kind of person that gets terrified by the things that you, you can't see and that haunts you? And so the gospel comes to us again in the book of Ephesians after the glorious revelation of all these things that we have in our salvation. And Paul ends the book not with little things that we can put on our body, you know, I'm going to put on the breastplate of salvation, the helmet of, you know, the, you know, helmet of righteousness. No, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, think things seen and unseen. And you have been given everything, my friend. Everything that you need is in the word as it, and is in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you have been rescued by God's powerful prophet, from every kind of terror, every kind of dread. That's good news. I can't improve on this. And so I ask you, if God did this for Gentiles, for his enemies, how much more will he give you good gifts and free you and open your eyes? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would do what I could never have done. I pray that he would preach a better message upon our souls and our minds now and show us Christ. Lord, where I have erred in my interpretation or, or anything I've said, I pray that it would be quickly forgotten. I pray that every person here would be more endeared to Christ and cherish him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.